Hi guys, I'm CJ Pearson and welcome to Talk of the Culture. first guest is an award-winning journalist, a New York Times best-selling author, and is described as one of the most lied about and censored men in America. The goal of Talk of the Culture here is to highlight the people that the media wants you to know nothing about. And so when I thought about who would be the best first guest, well, that was easy. Milo Annapolis, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You know, I'd never heard you speak. I didn't realize you had such an irresistible accent. So, Milo, you grew up in the UK. Um, in England. So what was that like growing up? Were your parents political? Were they involved? Tell me a little bit about that. No, my mother was sort of a, well, she she just rode horses most of the day. She wasn't particularly interested in anything other than mucking out the stables um, and drinking lots of champagne. And my dad was not really around very much. So I, I wasn't, I didn't live in a very political household. But I became aware of politics, first of all, when I was a technology reporter for The Telegraph, which is kind of like some, it's a little bit like our Washington Post, but center right rather than center left, I guess. And I started working for them as just like a tech columnist, tech reporter. And I began to be asked to report on the world in a way that I knew wasn't true. So we'd be expected to repeat these statistics from women in tech groups about the you know terrible status of women in the technology industry. And I just knew it didn't concord with reality. It wasn't matching up to my experience of, 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 the, of the industry at all. And we were being asked ultimately to put politics ahead of fact and integrity. And we were being asked to place ideology ahead of um, of the truth. And then I started to realize that this was happening in other places too. And so my red pull moment, as, as people now call it, was, you know, just, just sort of, it was a six month realization as a journalist of the utter misery of, of an, and moral um, bankruptcy of journalism in general. And the lies that newsrooms and TV stations tell you all day, every day about really important things. Because I realized, well, if they lie about this, which doesn't matter at all, because who cares about some girl's coding afternoon that Microsoft is hosting? Um, what are they telling us about the stuff that really does matter? What are they telling us about religion, about money, about whatever? Uh, and, and gradually, I became so completely disgusted with my own profession that I began to carve out a career doing something slightly different, which is really becoming a sort of thorn in my own profession side, holding journalists' feet to the fire, becoming a, a media critic rather than a part of the problem. Well, Milo, so what year was this that you were at The Telegraph? Um, it was probably about eight years ago. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, it seems as if fake news has lived a long time. Well, the, the disciplines that are run by liberal arts graduates and especially those disciplines that have large numbers of middle-aged single women in them, which journalism does a little bit. Uh, publishing is run by women. Uh, advertising departments for podcasts are completely female, which is why people like me and Gavin McInnes have so much trouble getting decent uh, uh, podcast sponsorship deals because those kind of 35 to 45-year-old single childless spinsters, the, the Hillary Pantsuit Brigade, are the ones who run publishing, uh, increasingly run journalism, uh, who run advertising departments because they're the ones on the phone kind of doing it. And, and this explains why certain people in the media 
have enormous problems getting commercial deals for their content while others don't. So, you know, the, the, the people who are perceived as being anti-woman have particular commercial problems. So Cernovich, McGuinness, Yiannopoulos would be the, the sort of unholy trio. I just realized for about 30 years, as the demographics changed in these industries and as they became prey to the politics first, burn it all down, uh, social justice tendency on college campuses, and as those graduates were coming out and populating these industries, that um, for at least 30 years, people were just being routinely lied to for some mysterious higher purpose, which is never really properly explained. And when it is explained, it's not convincingly argued. And I didn't want to become part of the problem. So I, I kind of started to, I turned around and started to shoot the people in, in my own trenches, you know? <laughs> so Malo, even though you've become sort of really one of the most lied about and most censored men in America, your roots are really mainstream. You started off at the Telegraph, as you said, a pretty right of center, but still mainstream publication. Um, but since your days in or your early days in journalism, you really became more of an opinion type of figure. I remember my first introduction to you being a piece that you did about fat shaming and why it was justified and how, you know, fat shaming would be the thing that saved fat people, not necessarily something that was meant to be an affront to fat people, but it was something that would save them. Um, the way you put it, it was, it was a controversial piece, but I remember reading it and thinking that this makes a whole lot of sense. So do you think that that mentality that you have to tell the truth at whatever cost um, is a reason that you're so hated by those on the left, but also a reason that you've kind of shifted into the role that you play today, which is kind of provocateur, cultural icon of, of, of sorts? Well, I think it happened because I realized that it's it's worse even than you say, and, and the way you put it is bad enough, that it's it's corrupting and preventing conversation, but it's doing something even worse than that. And, and look at the in, the in the example of fat shaming, it isn't only that we're not allowed to talk about women's weight, or if we do, it can only ever be in a particular way. The studies that are conducted about, for instance, the efficacy of fat shaming, whether or not it works to point out that a woman is overweight, those studies themselves are now conducted by people who have also been uh, tainted by the, the, this politics. So if you look at the studies that say fat shaming doesn't work, they are hopelessly flawed. Either they have tiny sample sizes, or the questions are ridiculously biased, or there's no, or, or, the, or the, the whole study is basically not even real and references numbers in another study, which reference numbers in another study, which comes from a leaflet from an advocacy group. You know, um, This kind of stuff happens all the time. If you actually look at the the data, the science, what's happening in university departments, it is hopelessly compromised by politics. So I, I was, in that piece and in many others that I have written and that I continue to write, I, I don't, I try to go a little bit deeper than free speech because, you know, yes, fine, the clampdown on free speech is bad enough and the, and the whole conservative movement is now, um, after my 2016 college tour, obsessed with the subject and that's great. But two things, one, it's way worse than just free speech and two, it's fine to ask for free speech, but you, you then have to ask, answer the question, what are you going to do with it? And I think a lot of young conservative activists don't have much of an idea of what the free speech debate is really about or why it matters, except as a means to cudgel the opposition. Well, okay, so if you can say whatever you want, what are you going to say? And I would quite like for more conservatives to say, well, I want to advocate for a capitalist, Christian, Western 
uh, Western world. The, on, the, on the first point, the reason I, I think that I became so successful so quickly is that I, you know, did the free speech thing, but then went to look deeper at, at why every, you know, it can be daunting if you read um, one of these pieces that says every, you know, nine studies have shown that fat shaming doesn't work. And it's quite a lot of work to then go and look at those nine studies and realize that actually this is not real. And I suppose what I was doing in those pieces is giving people the ammunition they needed to go out there and argue their positions, ammunition that they didn't know was around. It's like when somebody says something to you and you know there's something wrong about it, but you don't know what it is, and you just wish somebody could tell you so that when it comes up again, you have answers for it and you know you have some some um, rebuttals in the chamber. What a lot of those Breitbart pieces did that I was writing for those couple of years was give people uh, rounds for their chamber, you know? So, that, so people were like, ah, well, you say that, but actually, da-da-da. And suddenly, people on the right found themselves winning arguments, which was sometimes novel for them. I, th I think that's why I wrote the pieces like I did and why I got such, um, as you as you so kindly say, uh, widespread acclaim so quickly, because I was giving people the, the ammunition they needed to go out and fight themselves. You raise a good point, Milo, there. And what's so interesting about it is that it's all rooted in fact. Everything you just said is rooted in fact. Being fat can kill you. That is a fact. You know, all the time I get messages from people um, ac across the country, young conservative activists who are like, you know, I'm the only person who thinks the way that I do in my classroom. Like, how do I respond to charges that Trump is a racist or why is abortion not the way to go? And I'm like, stick with facts. But Milo, people literally hate you because of your propensity to use facts. Like, how does that make you feel? Is that ever frustrating at all? Well, the, the, the thing they really hate more than anything else is the laughter. It's the joy. Something that I do better than anybody else and something that I do really, really very well is not just, you know, bring the pain and do the takedowns and all the rest of it, but I do it with a smile on my face. I make people laugh. Um, you know, in my college talks, they're as much stand-up performances as they are uh, speeches about the subject matter. And the thing that totalitarians and authoritarians hate more than anything else is the sound of laughter. And conservatives sometimes say that, but they don't then take the next step and say, therefore, I'm going to be funny. They say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I just wish we had right-wing comedians. No, just be one. That's lazy. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I took this insight that totalitarians and authoritarians hate the sound of laughter more than anything else. And the logical consequence of that is, well, if you want to be effective, then you have to make people laugh. I have a smile on my face. I have had more thrown at me in the last two years than anybody in America with the exception of the president. And I still wake up every day with a smile on my face. I'm still happy. And I'm still, you know, like I'm still, I'm still um, joyful. And that joyfulness, which is Christianity's great innovation and contribution to Western culture, the smile on our faces, um, which is outside the scope of this podcast, but we'll talk about it another time. Um, that's what they hate the most, is not only am I capable of making them look ridiculous, but I do so in a way that is full of joy and not full of hate. So in that, in that respect, I'm very different to a lot of the popular conservatives who've come before, who are very effective and brilliant, but who rely on outrage and fulmination and, and fire and brimstone. The sort of, you know, people who are kind of fact machine guns are often popular with conservatives, but they are kryptonite for everybody else because they're so unlikable um, and so unrelatable. And I think that's I think that's my point of difference with others. And that's why the left hates me so much. Not because I'm far right, they know I'm not, but because I'm effective. And it, very, very effective people are often 
wrongly accused of extremism as a way of putting people off them. But it, it's joy and it's laughter, and that's why they hate me more than anything else. It isn't really the facts because they already know they're lying. You're not, you know, you're not shocking them by telling them they're lying. They know they're lying. They're, as the words leave their mouths, they know that those words are not true. They just don't care because they think it's in service of some greater ideal, like Rolling Stone. You know, printing a story about a rape that probably never happened. They didn't care whether it happened or not. They just wanted to say rape is bad, you guys. Like any of us don't know already. So it it isn't really the facts, and that's what I think a lot of other conservatives miss, and that's what that's why they're so boring. Another thing that really interests me about you, Milo, is it kind of relates, and it relates to a lot of my criticisms of other conservative commentators and pundits, is that a lot of conservatives are oblivious to the culture. You know, we discard rap as irrelevant and tasteless. We say that Hollywood doesn't matter, but then we wonder why young people flock to liberalism, and it's because that they are surrounded by it in every single corner of their lives. Like, they open up their phone, they go on social media, they watch a YouTube video, they're surrounded by the liberal narrative. And it doesn't seem as if conservatives want to combat that because they're like, who cares what Kylie Jenner posts? Well, billions of people care what Kylie Jenner posts. When Kylie Jenner posted that the Snapchat update was the stupidest thing that she's ever seen, the stock market value of Snap took a hit. Like That's how important the culture is. But unlike other people on the right, Milo, you've really embraced this kind of cultural war that we're in against the left. What motivates you in, to, to do that? And, and where do you think we are in that? And, and why do you do that? No, it's so boring. I mean, I, was, I, was, I almost went to sleep just hearing you describe the problem, let alone doing it. It's like, oh, the impact of government relations on... No, it's like, what? No, no, I'm just talking to people about something interesting they care about in a way that's going to keep them awake, for God's sake. Yes, I totally agree. And that's been a criticism of Ben Shapiro, is that he's an incredibly smart guy. He's really good at debating. Like, what does he say that is anything different than what we've heard in the last decade or so from other conservative commentators? Absolutely nothing. Uh, yes, um, I think I think that he's somebody who can get the ranks, get the troops mobilized. He can excite the ranks of conservatives, but there isn't a person alive uh, walking planet Earth who has been converted to being a Republican by Ben Shapiro because he's so repellent to anyone who doesn't already agree with him. Uh, and and that that he has a noble, worthy purpose, and his purpose is to you know to rally the troops on his own side, and that's perfectly great. But there are others of us who would rather focus on converting the other side. Now, Milo, you actually used to work with Ben Shapiro, and I know you have got a little bit of beef, so what's the backstory there? Well, no, I mean I've only met the guy once or twice. We we briefly crossed over at Breitbart just before he left and started immediately crapping on his former employer and, and colleagues, which is something he does regularly. Um, I, I, I don't like him as a person. Um, I appreciate his great rhetorical and intellectual gifts. He's definitely very smart. Um, I just, I find him personally repellent. And why would you say that? Oh, well, because I, I, I think he's, um, I think he's for hire. I think his opinions are for hire. Uh, in fact, I know they are. Uh, so, uh, because uh, we, we've uh, um, we have many wealthy friends in common, uh, and, I, and I know the uh, the shifting sands of Ben Shapiro's opinion on subjects. As you know, he's, he's sensed the opportunity, whether in fame or money. Uh, I find very unappealing. Um, and uh, it smacks of, smacks of poor character. And you know what? I have in my life. Um, I've written 
I've, I've sold more books than 99.8% of authors. I've been more successful than 99.8% of political activists. I've been more famous than 99.8% of people. I'm happy. Like I've, I helped to get a president in office. Like I'm good. You know, <laughs> like if I retired tomorrow and did something else, I'd be perfectly happy. Um, I would also be happy toiling in the wilderness if I were unfashionable, as I was for the first six months of my career before it, things took off. Um, for you know, to, to have a couple of years when I'm needed or when I'm popular, rather than these sort of opportunistic commentators who just dramatically shift what they believe, what they say, and who they like according to the winds of fortune and the political and the political ups and downs um, of, of presidential elections. I would never in a million, you know, I was one of Trump's biggest supporters, but I would never have. Um, given anything like a, an official endorsement, nor would I ever have joined any kind of administration or ever worked for the guy because I would never tie my fortunes to, to any political candidate like that. Um, and, and the people who do in this sort of desperate attempt to, to grab relevance and money and, and all the rest of it, who can buy their way to fame, as some people have, um, I find that personally repellent. And that's kind of what I meant. Oh, yeah, I agree. Right. And, and it wasn't... And it also... It wasn't um, unconditional. Just just last week, I said, if he doesn't build the wall, I will be in the front row cheering on his impeachment. And I meant it. I do mean it. You know, like if, he, if he doesn't fulfill his signature campaign promise after having been elected as somebody specifically elected as someone who will blow up the swamp of people who tear up their manifestos as soon as they get elected, you know, um, if he does not fulfill his signature campaign promise, then I will join Ann Coulter in saying I was a silly girl, uh, I you know, and I will be front row cheering on his impeachment because he'll deserve it. And that's the difference between a sort of blind political allegiance and, and integrity and sincerity. You know? And I don't, I don't think anybody with as peculiar and iconoclastic a clutch of opinions and positions on things as I have could ever support any political candidate utterly, you know? For sure. Now, Milo, let's take a trip down memory lane. So back around 2015, 2016, you were actually one of the biggest supporters of President Trump. You were at the forefront of MAGA. Uh, and so I'm curious here. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the job that the president has been doing? His administration's success is a zero until he builds the wall, at which point it will become a 10. Because, no, look. You, no, I mean, he's he's Republican in the sense that, like, you know, he doesn't get credit for Hillary not being in office because he won the election. Great. But that's not the question. The question is, how do I rate the administration? And the administration's only real purpose was to fix immigration and to build the wall. It's the only thing he needed to do, and he hasn't done it. Now, the effect of the Donald Trump presidency on culture, on the conversation, on society has been wonderful. But he doesn't get credit for that either, because it's not what he's doing. It's not the policy. It's not the laws he's enacting. You know, Any Republican in office would would or could have picked um, the two Supreme Court nominees he's picked, because neither of them is particularly congruent with his own style of politics. Both are much more classical country club uh, establishment GOP types, you know. Uh, Kavanaugh is, is the other end of the party from him. Kavanaugh is, you know, fully paid up GOP establishment. Great, fine on most of the issues, all right. But, but you know, he hasn't put Trump-like conservatives on the Supreme Court. He's put regular ones. So he's just done what any other. And the tax cut bill, classic old school Republican. I mean, he's just behaved like any other Republican president, which is, of course, better than the alternative. But he doesn't get extra special credit when the only thing we wanted him to do was drain the swamp. Clearly, no, not yet, at least, although he's certainly scared and annoyed them. And two, build the wall. Hasn't done that either. So that's a zero. So, Milo, we've talked a lot about politics, and I kind of just want to talk about you now. 
throughout all of this, you've mentioned happiness a lot about how you're always seeking it. That must be hard, right? Like you have been banned on multiple platforms, been banned by Twitter, banned by PayPal, banned by Patreon. All of these ways, all of these platforms were used as a means for you to support yourself. Throughout all of that, throughout all the obstacles, throughout all the censorship, throughout all of the downright blacklisting, how do you maintain that happiness, Milo? Well, I went into journalism a very wealthy person. And although I've spent all the money now, um, I had the time of my life over the last couple of years. And, you know, look, I still earn more in a month than my critics do in a year. I, I'm okay, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, maybe I have, a, I have a, lot of, uh, a lot of things I need to pay. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of outgoings and a lot of uh, you know bills and all the rest of it, but but like I'm I'm not poor exactly. Uh, I just you know I just everything everything that comes in goes out, but I still you know on the books I'm still bringing in more than most of these people make in a year. Like I'm, I'm not not that not that bad. And and the thing is, success and money don't have to stand in opposition to happiness, but they so often do because they set up contrary incentives from one another very often. Um, anybody who has fallen in love knows the the pull of your professional instincts versus your desire to just spend all your time with that person that you love. And I think it's possible to be successful and stay happy by staying faithful. That is both to your love, to the church, to your principles and all the rest of it. But it is sometimes a more slow and steady path rather than, you know, I've seen so many people who give themselves up utterly to their careers actors, um, people in finance. And this is especially a problem for women who have been told that they can put off having a family until later, which is a lie. I've never met a single childless woman in her 30s who is happy. And this is the best example of somebody who has pursued career over joy, who's pursued the professional over the personal, is women who put off having children and don't get married and just, just to work. So they have an apartment that they hate shared by flatmates instead of a loving husband and children at the age of 35. And suddenly they realize that they've got two years left or they biologically can't have children anymore. So I stay happy because I've made the right choices, or at least I make better choices than other people, which is, I, I know I have a, a, I work enormously and extraordinarily hard in short bursts, but I also reserve a lot of leisure time for myself to spend, you know, with, with my family. And that, energizes me and focuses me on those in those periods when I am working. And I found that I'm actually more productive. I get more done, not less, because I know that what's at stake and I know what I've got to get back to. And I have to get certain things done in a short space of time. Another tip for you is be absolutely ruthless about what you will and won't do. It's fine to do favors for people. Everybody needs to build connections and networks on the way up. But I've seen just, you know, the, the sort of, um, flagrant, shameless dis, uh, disloyalty from people who you helped. Um, and I won't mention any names on this show, but but I've seen that many times over the past few years. People whose shows I basically made by introducing them to all their guests, you know, uh, and, and, and putting them on the map with my appearances and all the rest of it, sort of turn around and badmouth me a year later because they think that it's politically expedient. Or, or, or they have new friends they want to suck up to or whatever. I've seen that happen a lot. And it made me realize you can be nice and you can be generous, but don't be too generous and don't be too nice and, and be ruthless about what you spend your time on. Really, that the old kind of um, 
entrepreneurial advice is true, which is pick one thing that you love, you love more than anything else, something you look forward to doing, and just become the absolute best in the world at it. And I like getting emotional reactions from people, whether that is prodding and trolling and, and stirring up my enemies or producing joy and happiness and relief and gratitude in my supporters. And I, I do both in equal measure. And I enjoy both in equal measure. Um, but, but that's because that's, I, I have great, uh, like all great comedians, I guess, I have, a, um, I have a gift of human insight and understanding. Like I can meet somebody for like two seconds and I know what makes them tick. I know what they care about. I know what will annoy them and I know what will make them happy. And that's what I can do better than anybody else. So I've just spent my time practicing on being really, really good at that. And I focus on, you know, everything that I do has to in some way be connected to the thing that gives me the most joy that I am best at. Because otherwise your work becomes a chore and you're supposed to leave chores behind when you, you know, when you leave your parents' house, you don't have to wash the dishes anymore. You're an adult. You can live exactly as you please. If you don't want to brush your teeth ever again, you don't have to. You just got to deal with the, the aftermath of that, you know? Incidentally, um, the worst teeth I've ever seen, Nathan Phillips. I'm pretty sure that they, they, they are quite hot on oral hygiene in the armed forces, but did you see him? How grotesque he looks? Oh my God. Anyway, um, uh, worse than his appearance, of course, is his moral character. I'm loving the unfurling drama of his, his service records. Anyway, um, do follow that old entrepreneurial advice because it is true and be ruthless about how you spend your time. And I think the third piece of advice would be go to church. Um, and I, I know that I've mentioned church a couple of times in this interview, but uh, the, the single thing you know, they do surveys um, like Pew and all the rest of it. They do these these wide-ranging surveys about happiness and all the rest of it. And there's one thing, there's one, let's not call it a hobby, there's one activity that is consistently a marker of happy, positive people. And if you do this one thing, you are vastly disproportionately like, uh, more likely to be happy, see your family more often, give more to charity, report yourself as content with, li uh, with life, vastly disproportionately less likely to report you know, depression or to attempt suicide. And that is regular participation in public worship, i.e. going to church. Um, getting involved, even if, you, even if you have questions about God, even if you're an agnostic, even if you're an atheist, if, if, you, if you are so mistaken, even if you're not sure about the whole God thing. Just going to church is likely to make you happier. Um, and this is, this is the most one of the most amazing statistics in the world. And you find actually that you become a much uh, more joyful person with a much better sense of priorities. And I think that part of the problem with the current crop of right-wing celebrities, or the Heathers as I call them, you know, the, the, this silly intellectual dark web or whatever they call themselves, is that you don't see a prominent Christian leadership in the current crop. Of, of so-called kind of conservative celebrities. And that's a really big problem because these people are trying to save a civilization they don't understand. So as you mentioned, you've talked about religion a good bit throughout this interview. And so I'm curious, throughout all the obstacles you've gone through, has that pushed you closer to God? You know, these are, these are people who have labeled you some of the worst things um, that you could ever be labeled, a white supremacist, a bigot, a racist. These are people who are actively trying to cancel you out of human civilization. Have you found relief in, in going to church and seeking God and reading his word? Well, I am, a, I am a through and through troll from my from my fingertips to my toes. And being told I can't do something doesn't make me want to do it. It makes me do it immediately and do it large and write it on the side of a building. And so <laughs> I think, um, I've definitely got more right wing as the years have gone on, for sure. And I definitely think 
that I've been pushed. See, because here's here's an interesting um, thing for you. People don't get radicalized to the right by radicals on the right. So here, you know, it's vanishingly rare that somebody who is already like a populist nationalist conservative will be converted into racism by uh, Richard Spencer. That doesn't happen. What happens is you get pushed to the right by extreme people on the left because you get repelled by them and you want to be as unlike them as possible. So having done the job that I've done for this long, I'm definitely getting very, very right wing. But I'm also, as I've realized that it's not free speech, it's not property rights, it's not the rule of law, it's not the English language, it's not even capitalism, but it's God that underpins the greatness of Western civilization, without which Western civilization is impossible. And that isn't true of any of the others. Um, not really. Seeing how not just godless, but um, sort of gleefully God-hating the other side is, I think that has had an effect on, on that. But also falling in love and getting married quote unquote married, um, you know, civil partnership, whatever. That joy that I have found in another person who has a deep, unconditional, profound love for me has opened me up for other kinds of love and made me emotionally available in a way that I, I perhaps wasn't before. And that I think also has brought me closer to, to the church and to God. Um, also, I'm drawn to institutions in crisis because I'm, I've always been good at persuading large numbers of people of things. And so this is one of the reasons that I'm, I've been active on college campuses, because they are institutions in crisis. And looking at the Catholic Church, which is in about the biggest crisis of any institution at the moment because of its um, stubborn refusal over decades to deal with the consequences of... of uh, that presents itself to me as, a, as an institution in crisis too. I'm always drawn to troubled people and things, you know? Um, and I, I'm drawn to I'm drawn to the Catholic Church in its time of peril and its time of need. I think weak people are repelled by those in trouble. I think that strong, good people see those in trouble and ask themselves what they can do to help, who, regardless of who they are. And so I, I think that's why I've been drawn to both universities and to um, and to the church. Now, Milo, you haven't only been going to church, you've also been making some gospel music. You just released a song called Silver and Gold. What kind of drove you to release a gospel project? This is the first time you ever did anything like that. So I'm curious, like, what pushed you to do it? Well, I, I, I've been singing since I was um, in single digits, and I was a chorister at um, Canterbury Cathedral, and I've, I just, I've, um, I don't know. The spirit moved me. Um, I, I've been thinking about doing music for a while because it's been such a part of the fabric of my life. And I kind of, I don't know. I just thought, well, why not? I'll just spend a day in the, in the studio. So it, it, people seem to love it. Uh, so I, th I think I'm going to do an EP later in the year of not such religious stuff. Um, and uh, no, it's, it's, you know, it's the curse of being a polymath. I can do pretty much everything really well. So I, I, <laughs> I, I just never got around to doing music before, and now I have. Um, but certainly the, the fact that it was a contemporary gospel song is definitely informed by how, how much the far left is pushing me to all kinds of virtue, including specifically Christian virtue. A man of many talents. So you're not only out here doing your typical political provocateur type of stuff. You're not you gospel artist. Like you're doing everything, Milo. You're doing everything. Well, thank you. And of course, I still got my usual um, childish provocation in with the video, 
um, which is a sort of silly uh, poking fun at myself for the financial ups and downs of a crazy uh, professional provocateur. Because, of course, the song is Silver and Gold, Kirk Franklin. It's a contemporary gospel uh, standard. So uh, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Um, of course, the song was illustrated by many pictures of me dripping in the former two, the latter two, rather. Uh, anyway, um, it's all well and good to talk about the fact that we need to retake the culture. I can probably count the number of conservatives doing it on my left hand, they're all Trump supporters, which is not a coincidence. Uh, you hear a lot of whining and words from conservatives and not a lot of action. And I thought, you know what? If I'm, I'm one of the people who's always talking about reclaiming the culture. So let's actually create some. Uh, so I hope to, I hope to do at least one studio album a year indefinitely. Um, from now on, just to, to, you know, put my money where my mouth is, as it were. So that brings me to my next question. So you've dropped the single album in the works. What's next for you, Milo? What should we be waiting on? What should we be expecting? Well, now I'm a recording artist. My time is very packed, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to... Um, so I'll do, be doing an album a year, and I'm about to announce that um, I've been looking for the right format for me because it's difficult to get me in a format that works. I'm not one of these people that can just rattle off conservative talking points for three hours on a radio show every day, talking into dead air. <laughs> Because it drives me absolutely nuts. I'm bored out of my mind. Uh, I, you know, there there are people who are perfectly happy repeating the same talking points day in day out, over and over again. I'm not one of them. It makes me. It just makes me so exhausted and bored. So I'm going to do a book every year. I'm going to do an album every year. The the the, the main thing I want to do is package what I love, which is playing characters. Um, going out and, and getting reactions from people and talking and making people laugh into a format that makes sense. And I think that format is a late night chat show, something along the lines of real time, the Bill Maher show. So that's what I'm going to be doing next. I'm going to do a very glamorously packaged, glossy, once a week late night chat show that will come out on Friday nights. Um, and that, that way I can, I get to play characters. I get to do a stand up set. I get to go out onto the street and, and talk to people. I get to, you know, do, do whatever I want within, within the confines of an hour, uh, and, um, and hopefully entertain people more than I educate them. And so that's, that's, I think a book a year, an album a year and a late night chat show every Friday night is, um, is about as much as I can manage. So all that's going to start spinning up in the next couple of months. Wow. That is dope, Milo, and I definitely think we need someone like you in that venue. Like, we have the Colberts, we have the Fallons, we have all those people, but there's no one on the right doing anything remotely like that. And you have the personality, you have the presence, you have the track record, all of that. Like, you you would excel in that. So, uh, last question here. A lot of people listening to this probably want to be like you. A lot of people probably want to do what you do. So enlighten us. What does it take to be like Milo Yiannopoulos? Oh, uh, you can't be, but uh, you can give it a good shot. No, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> I'm not. I mean, I do have some unusual gifts that other people don't have, um, including the hair. But if you're really, really great at any, pretty much anything, you can turn that into a talent or a skill. 
I think what marks me apart, though, is not necessarily any particularly God-given talents, um, though I have a couple, but really it's relentlessness and determination. If you're in this business for any length of time, and or in any business for any length of time, displaying any kind of conservative politics whatsoever in public, th- the attacks on you are going to be utterly relentless. And they're going to come proportionately to your influence, which is why I take them as such enormous compliments, because that's what they are. They are testaments to my... Um, impact and uh, an influence. So I'm very happy every time someone comes for me because it means, you know, they have no arguments left. They just want to try to, to shoot the messenger, um, which doesn't really work. You have to, you, you need only one skill to be truly successful. If you have any political aspirations on the right, you only need one skill. And that skill is relentlessness. It's the ability that, uh, you see Laura Luma has it in spades, to just, things just bounce off you. Um, that sort of rhino hide, the Teflon coating, and you get up, and you don't just not get upset about it, but you get up and you keep working. And it's a lot easier said than done sometimes, because anybody who is a human being gets beaten down and depressed and exhausted by this stuff. It's understandable. It's, it's even, you know, I, even I, you know, for four and a half seconds, once every two years, occasionally think, why do I do this? But if you are able not just to, not just to let the false name, the, you know, the name calling and the attacks and the misrepresentations and the lies and the censorship and all the rest of it, if you're, if you're able to not only have it wash over you, but even, and this is where you level up, um, discover the ability to, to use it as fuel to, light a fire underneath you to, to strike back twice as hard, then you have a shot. And if you don't have that, you won't succeed. You do need a good work ethic. You need some talent. You need some you know, friends. You need all, all the rest of it. You need all the rest of it. But to be specifically, to be successful on the right, you need to be relentless. It's okay to be afraid uh, because it is scary. It's okay to you know be depressed because it is depressing. It's okay to have a lot of other imperfections. And Lord knows I have plenty of them. But you have to be one of those people who just has the relentless switch in their brain. Ann Coulter has it. Laura has it. I have it. Trump has it. Roger Stone has it. And this is why people hate us more than they hate anybody else. They hate us because we don't fear them. In fact, we use them as as fuel. Their tears heat our pools. Uh, you know, they they hate us because we don't just stand up to the bullies, but we laugh in the bully's face. And that laughter robs the bully of the ability to fight back, to punch back. That gives us power over them that they cannot explain or beat. And that it, uh, it makes us invulnerable to their usual lines of attack. And that's really if you if you want to float to the top of the of the crop in at least among the conservative base you you need that quality so there's lots of other piecemeal advice i could give you depending on which little bit of the world you're going into but really you need to if you don't have it already and some of us were just born with it we just don't give a you know what but other people have to develop it over time if you don't have it learn it and if you think that the relentless personal attacks, you know, your family's pictures being put up on social media and someone saying, where do they live? I'm going to go and shoot them and all the rest of it. If that's the kind of thing that will leave you sobbing in a heap or even just prevent you from going into work the next day, this isn't for you. And it's better to be honest sooner and go and do something else with your life. But if it is for you, if you are that kind of person, if you do realize that the stakes are so high that you're prepared to sacrifice personally, then you might have a shot. 
I've noticed about the conservative base that it is um, loud but cowardly. I'm so sorry. The conservative base in this country is cowardly. They talk a good game, but they, they, their contributions are limited to voting every four years, and they think that that's enough. It's not enough. The left wants to wipe everything you care about from the face of the earth, and they're doing quite a good job of it. I don't want to hear from conservatives again, oh, well, they can go to protest because you know they don't have jobs and we do. We're Republicans. Unless you're prepared to sacrifice something about your own life, unless you're prepared to give something up, you will never accomplish anything in political activism. I have lost almost everything. I'll get it all back at some point. I'll lose it again. And that cycle will happen many times in the 30 or 40 years I'm going to be active um, on this planet in politics. But one thing I don't lose is, is the relentlessness. And that's, that's what you need. Because if you're the kind of person who can be put off and who finds excuses for not taking to the streets to, to demand you know, justice and truth and all the rest of it, um, you're not going to make it and you're just sucking up funding and oxygen from people who deserve it more. So do, do, the, good, do, the, do the good honest thing and bow out. Uh, so that, that's my main, my main piece of advice. Thank you guys for listening to the first episode of Talk of the Culture. I had an incredible time doing this interview with Milo Yiannopoulos and I cannot wait to have him back on. But guys, this is only the beginning. There are many, many more people to come and many more things to talk about. Stay tuned and watch this space.